Thank you, choir, for uh, working so hard these last weeks that you could share that message and song. Really just lift our hearts and praise of our great God. It was really very, very well done. We appreciate all the hard work involved in making that possible. 1648. Put your, uh, get in your time tunnel and go backwards to the year 1648 which was a very, very significant year in European history. For it was the year 1648 that marks what is known as the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia was actually a series of two treaties that were signed in that year that brought an end to what is known as the Thirty Years' War. For 30 years, the continent of Europe had experienced bloodshed as various feuding Protestant and Roman Catholic groups slaughtered one another in a bloody, bloody series of conflicts. At the Peace of Westphalia, there was brought an end to that bloodshed, which brought about a very significant impact upon what would later become the nation of Germany. Germany didn't actually become a nation for a couple of hundred years following that, but coming out of the Peace of Westphalia, it was determined that each German prince would have the right to determine the religion for his own state, be it Roman Catholic or Lutheran or the newly recognized Calvinism. So Germany was now broken down into various states in which religion had been established based on the religion of the prince over that state. The other significant item that came out of the Peace of Westphalia was that the people that were living in in an area that that practiced the religion different from their prince would now be permitted to continue to practice that religion, gathering publicly during certain designated hours, and then privately whenever they chose. Very, very significant terms in, in, uh, in the area of personal religious freedom. Now, we moderns, we look back on this event, the Peace of Westphalia, with a certain degree of puzzlement, for it seems very strange and very foreign to us that that would be how things would be done. We live in a day and age in which religious passions and doctrinal distinctives are considered suspect. Actually, in many quarters, they're considered a problem that ought to be avoided. Now, we're not advocating that we kill one another over a person's particular religious belief. But we, the pendulum has swung so far among us moderns that it seems for many there is no passion at all, let alone a passion that would rise to the point where you would want to fight over it. The language of religious tolerance and ecumenicalism, formerly the domain of religious liberals, is now very much an increasing part of what is known as evangelicalism. Doctrinal statements of Christian organizations that once were very robust and full, people articulating what it was they did believe about the Scriptures, have now been stripped down 
to the point where it seems there's almost a perverse pride in being able to say as little as possible in the simplest possible terms. The result, I believe, of this spirit of the age is an appalling level of biblical ignorance among the people of God. We uniquely possess in our generation the written Word of God in our language, something our forefathers died in order to be able to have. And yet among us, there are many who neither open their Bibles from week to week, nor have really much of an understanding of what is between those covers. In many, many ways, the evangelical church is in need of another reformation. Another reformation. And one of the areas of confusion and particular spiritual attack, if I can say it that way, and an attack that has a deadly outcome is with regard to the doctrine of sola fide. Sola fide. That is a Latin term. Sola means only. Fide means faith. And so literally it is faith only or it is more commonly known faith alone. Faith alone. This Reformation rallying cry is a shorthand way of referring to the critical theological truth that a sinner is justified before a holy God based on the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to that sinner received by faith alone. By faith alone. To impute something is to attribute, to ascribe, to assign the merit or wickedness of one party to another. That is what it means to impute. It is to assign that which is not yours, or or rather to receive by assignment that which is not yours from another. Thus, in the doctrine of imputation, God justifies the ungodly by assigning their guilt to Jesus Christ and His righteousness to them. This marvelous transaction, this legal declaration comes about when a person exercises faith in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by faith alone. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 speaks of it there. And he says, He made Him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. We are justified, and we learn this over the weeks, that we are justified not by our own self-effort, but instead by what is legally added to us by faith, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this whole doctrine of imputation to you because it is going to be critical for our understanding of what it is as we explore the text before us in the next few weeks. Suppose, this is an illustration, suppose my son wanted to go to the Upland High School football game on Friday evening. And he were to come to me and say, Dad, can I go to the football game Friday night? 
And I say to him, yes, you may go to the football game Friday night, but the lawn needs to be mowed first. So, suppose further with me that my son decides that being at school Friday afternoon and hanging with his friends is more fun than mowing the lawn, and so he does not come home to do it. He spends the whole afternoon at school hanging out with his buddies after school, and he doesn't come home and get the lawn mowed. But I get home from work, and the lawn is not mowed, and so I get out the lawn mower and I mow it myself. After I finish mowing it, I've just put the lawn mower away. My son pulls up out front, and he comes to me, and he is very stricken with guilt. He humbly apologizes to me for not coming home to mow the lawn. And he says, I understand, Dad, that, that uh, you know, the lawn needed to be mowed or I could not go to the football game. And so I accept my consequences. I know that I cannot go to the game this evening. And I say to my son, son, I am going to impute, that is, I am going to attribute or assign to you the mowed lawn. I am going to credit it to your account. What that means is that you now possess the credit of a mowed lawn. And since I said to you that you cannot go to the football game unless the lawn is mowed, and the lawn is now mowed, and I have credited, I have imputed it, I have assigned it to you, Therefore, have a good time at the football game, and I hope they win. Okay? That, beloved, is the doctrine of imputation. That is the doctrine of imputation. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 3. And by the way, if there are any of you parents sitting out there thinking, that's not fair, okay, you are absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us and our guilt to Him is not fair. Romans 3, we're going to begin in verse 27 this morning. That's page 1128 if you're using one of those few Bibles. This is a very lengthy section of Scripture that we are only going to begin to, um, to touch on this morning. It begins in verse 27 of chapter 3 and takes us all the way to chapter 4 and verse 25, all of chapter 4. So this part of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 is given over to this one discussion. This is the discussion of sola fide, faith alone, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to an undeserving sinner. Now, Paul has been very forcefully articulating the reality that true righteousness, that is justification, comes to man not by what he does, but as a gift of God's grace, right? Verses 21 through 26, and we've been hammering away at that. Paul is now going to advance the argument to the next stage, and that is that he's going to say to us or prove to us in these next couple of weeks that the basis of our acceptance before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is now comes to us by means of faith. That which we could not achieve on our own has been given to us as a gift and the means of receiving the gift is faith alone. The word faith is first introduced here in verse 22 of chapter 3. 
And then it is repeated over and over again. In fact, it blossoms like a a beautiful flower across the text, the rest of chapter three and through chapter four. In this section, this word faith appears 15 times in 30 verses. Okay, so if you get the same word appearing 15 times in 30 verses, you better sit up and take notice for what is being communicated here to us. We have learned about justification, that is, that the the acquittal comes from God to the sinner by a gift. But we are going to learn now that the means of receiving that gift is faith and it is faith alone. So, using a series of five contrasts, we will draw out the nature and implications of faith as the sole means of justification So that we might understand how a person is made right before their creator. Okay. Now, I've given you the outline of the whole section all the way to the end of chapter four. It's there on your handout here in verses uh, 27 through 31 of chapter three. Paul contrasts faith with law keeping. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Faith contrasted with law keeping. Then in the first eight verses of chapter four, you have faith contrasted with works. Following that, in verses 9 through 12, we have faith contrasted with circumcision. Then verses 13 through 16, we have faith contrasted with the law. And then finally, 17 through 22, we have faith contrasted with sight. Okay, so there's just a series of five contrasts that the Apostle Paul makes in this section, placing faith up against various other systems or means by which a man might think that he could be justified. Now, also, you will remember that as we studied chapter two and the first part of chapter three, that we said there's a certain literary structure that the Apostle Paul employs called a diatribe, a diatribe. And that was a historically recognizable form of communication whereby a person would would uh, frame questions or arguments or disagreements with what it is they're trying to communicate. And they would put those in the mouths of an imaginary person and then they would respond back to them. So they would raise a series of questions or statements and then they would respond. That's called a diatribe. And and Paul here, beginning in in verse 27 of chapter three, returns to that form of argumentation. Okay, the diatribe. And so he begins in verse 27. And let me just go ahead and read 27 through 31. And then we will look at these three implications of faith uh, contrasted with law keeping. Verse 27, Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So let's look at these implications that are available to us in the in the verses 27 through 31, whereby Paul is contrasting faith with law keeping. The first is um, calling it no boasting. Okay, verses 27, 28, no boasting. Paul begins there and he says, where then is boasting? And he's drawing off of uh, obviously what has gone before. 
And what has gone before in verses 21 through 26 is this relentless argument that he has made is that that uh, justification comes to us as a gift by the grace of God. There's that is a gift that comes to us and therefore there is no room for boasting. Neither the Jew nor the Gentile can in any way think that their obedience to law constitutes some kind of claim upon God. Okay? God is no man's debtor. Therefore, all boasting before him is excluded. How? On what basis is it excluded? That's what the question is here. It is excluded, Paul says. And and the response is, by what kind of law? Is it a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Paul says that God has excluded all claims of human achievement by virtue of a law of faith. A law of faith. Well, what in the world is he talking about here? Some commentators think that he is contrasting the proper and improper use of the Mosaic law. That is, that he is, he is um, pointing out a misunderstanding of the Mosaic law that, w- that would be common to his day. And that is that there would be some who think the law of Moses was a, a system of external work that a person could do that would make them right before God. And he is contrasting that with the true intention of the Mosaic law, which is that it is a, a, a series of, of law that is designed to generate faith in people as they realize they can't keep it. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Okay, there are many who think that's what he's talking about, but I don't think it's true. And the reason I don't think that's true is I don't think it draws a sharp enough distinction for what he is uh, speaking about in this text. Okay, I don't think it I don't think it adequately draws the sharp uh, dichotomy that the Apostle Paul is trying to draw here. Furthermore, I don't think it holds up to verse 31 when he gets to the end here and he says, do we then nullify the law? If you're thinking about the Mosaic law, he's saying do we then nullify the Mosaic law through faith. And he is he says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. I don't think that 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 uh, is what is being addressed there as well. So I think what Paul's talking about instead here is two different systems of justification, two systems of justification. The word law, nomos in the Greek actually can include the idea of a principle, an order, or a rule, or even a system. Okay? It doesn't always have to speak of law, a series of laws. Okay? And so I think what he is really doing here is he, is he is not contrasting a proper and improper understanding of the Mosaic Law, but he is contrasting two different systems of justification. One system is law-keeping. The other system is faith. So it's a faith system versus a law-keeping system that I believe Paul is addressing here in verses 27 through 31. The law-keeping system is a works-based system that then provides a fertile ground for human boasting. If it's justification by the law, by the keeping of some kind of law system, then therefore those who keep the law system have a basis to which say that I've been accepted because... I did what I was told. And I believe he is contrasting that with the faith-based system, which eliminates all boasting altogether. That faith-based system is illustrated for us in the next verse, verse 28. A clear presentation of the faith-based system of justification. For we maintain, he says, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. 
What he is saying here is that it doesn't matter what a person does. It does not matter what you do. It is not based upon your obedience to any law. In fact, it's not based upon anything that you do at all. Your justification before God, your right standing before God has nothing to do with what you do. Nothing to do with what you do. No works at all of any kind or to any degree can in any way motivate God towards your justification. You can play no part in your salvation. That's what Paul is saying. If God were to do 99.999% of the work and it would leave you only one one thousandth of a thing to do, whatever that little thing is, then it would no longer be justification by faith alone, right? by grace through faith alone. It would therefore be a works system. You would have something to boast in. So the only way that God can eliminate all human boasting is to eliminate all human effort, all human works of any kind. Law-keeping does not justify. It does not justify. And it's important, by the way, that we also remember that neither does faith. Faith does not justify. There are some out there who say, well, we realize we're not justified by our works, but we do believe and and it is our belief that then separates us. But nowhere does Scripture say that we are justified because of our faith. It never says you are justified because of your faith, nor does it say that you are justified on account of your faith. We are justified by faith or through faith. Okay, and this is an important thing to remember. Faith is a channel. Faith is a means by which the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus flows to and becomes ours. But you are justified only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. It is not your faith that saves you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves you. There's a warning. There's a warning that is built into this. No boasting. I don't think there's probably anybody in here who would openly boast and say that um, somehow my spiritual achievements, right, is uh, caused God to, uh, to be inclined towards me. I don't think anybody would openly say that. But there are ways in which the deceitfulness of the human heart, little subtleties can arise in the mind in which we can fall prey to spiritual pride. That we can, in the secret places of our heart, begin to entertain the idea that, well, maybe God is inclined towards me because... And we look around and we begin to compare ourselves to someone else. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. And and beloved, it is a fertile ground for this kind of thinking. It is human nature to want to earn it yourself, right? We see it from the time they're little, right? Me do it myself. 
And what God says is, no, you do not do it yourself. God do it for you. Okay? There are those little subtle areas. We can begin to think about our morality. How moral we are. And we look around at others. And they're not so moral as we are. And so maybe, just maybe, God's looking at us and He's feeling inclined our way. Or maybe it's our knowledge of the Bible. I mean, we have studied the book. We know the book. We have achieved the knowledge of the Scriptures. And so maybe that's what God, you know, just know and we know the Bible. Or our church attendance. I mean, every time the doors are open, we're here. And certainly God has got to be pleased with that. And, and maybe He's, you know, just really pleased with that. Or our ministry involvement, Right? I mean, I'm involved in 15 different ministries. Every day of the week, I'm involved in ministry. I go here, I go there, I do this, I do that. Boy, you want a ministry machine? That's me. And, and maybe God kind of likes that stuff. And so I'm inclined to His direction, or He mine. Maybe it's our faithful prayer life. I'm a prayer warrior. I pray and I pray and I look around other people. They don't pray like I pray. Maybe God likes me that way. Or maybe it's my evangelistic passion and zeal, right? I'm out there sharing my faith all the time. And, and God certainly would want somebody to do that. And maybe, maybe I'm one of those guys. It's real subtle. It's real secret. It's real dangerous to in any way attribute anything you have done, you will do or are doing to somehow think that God is inclined to you because... Okay? It's not even your faith. God's plan of salvation destroys self esteem, self righteousness, secret self congratulation. All of it is torn up by the roots. Okay? Torn up by the roots. True believers in Jesus Christ are never to entertain anywhere, even in the secret recesses of their heart, that somehow God has accepted us based upon our own merit, real or perceived. Okay? A person who sees themselves rightly, that is one who sees themselves as God sees them, abases themselves, makes themselves small, and makes God big, exalts God. William Carey, great pioneer missionary to the country of India, when he died in 1834, had the following inscribed on his tombstone. Quote, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, upon thy kind arms I fall. End quote. I walk through a lot of cemeteries, beloved. I do a fair number of funerals, and I walk through a lot of cemeteries, and I don't see that on very many tombstones okay but William Carey rightly saw God and thus rightly saw himself and he said I am a worm and upon God's kind arms I fall for there is nothing else beloved praising not boasting is what characterizes the life of a follower of Jesus Christ both today and for eternity right before the throne of God above, bursting forth in praise. No boasting. Secondly, no discrimination. 
No discrimination. Verses 29 and 30. No discrimination. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Remember, this is a diatribe now. So Paul's going to kind of flip it and take the opposite tact. He's going to basically ask the question, what if God does not justify by faith alone? What if he really does justify based upon our works, based upon our law keeping? What would that mean? That's how he introduces it here. You see in verse 29, or, or that is that he's introducing the alternative to the principle of sola fide that has just been expressed in verse 28. And what Paul says is that if justification is by law keeping, then only those who have the law can be justified. And those who have the law most fully are the what? The Jews. The Jews. Now, Paul rejects this possibility, but notice what he does. Is, and this is so cool. He just turns Judaism on itself to disprove this possibility. Notice at the end of verse 30, or at least that's what the NASB puts it, at the end of verse 30, uh, verse 30, he says, is one, okay? Speaking about God, he says, God is one. That is the basis of his argument to cut off the notion that law-keeping can somehow justify you before God. God is one. This is the bedrock belief of Judaism, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. And so he takes this bedrock truth of Judaism and he turns it on his imaginary opponent. And by doing that, he does a little theological jujitsu and the guy ends up flat on his back. OK, that's why it's really cool. I love this kind of stuff. By the way, Jesus was a master at this stuff. Here's his argument. If monotheism is true, and it is then the one true God must be the same God for all. And therefore, his way of salvation must also be the same for all. Do you see that? He takes what is their bedrock truth and he demonstrates to them that there can only be one way. Now, the, the Jews of Paul's day would readily agree that God created, God fed, God governed, and God generally provided for the Gentiles by means of his loving providential care. They would say that Yahweh was not some tribal deity, right? Some regional God, but he was and is the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Therefore, since he is the one and only true God, there must be, or we should expect of him, maybe a better way to say, that he would offer salvation to all people Jew or Gentile on the same basis and in the same way, which is by faith alone. By faith alone. This is a startling truth. And in fact, it, it's, it's really amazing because over in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when there was a, the tug of war going on, right, of whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised to come in, the circumcision was a shorthand of way of saying coming in under the Mosaic law. That there in the mouth of the Apostle Peter, we read the following statement, chapter 15, verse 11 of Acts, where Peter says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are also. 
It's fascinating because Peter doesn't say they, the Gentiles, are saved the same way that like we are. He says we, the Jews, are saved the same way the Gentiles are. It is by grace through faith alone. Now, the implications of this for the community of believers is huge. Absolutely huge. God's oneness is the basis for the unity of the local church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? The oneness of God is the basis of the unity of the local church. And the reason is, is because it necessitates one means of salvation. Therefore, it eliminates all preferential treatment, all preferential distinctions come to nothing at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, right? There is neither male nor female. There is neither uh, 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 Jew or Gentile. And I'm losing the rest of it. Um, slave or free. You're all one in Christ. Something like that. I think I got the gist of it at least. All right? Galatians 3.28. Paul says that at the foot of the cross, all the external distinction. It is only by grace. Through faith. Alone. Now, this reality that there's only one way of salvation and thus one people of God, it means that all these distinctions, right? Ethnic distinctions, national distinctions, social distinctions, sexual distinctions, age related distinctions, they all fall away. They all fall away. That doesn't mean that men are no longer men, women are no longer women, right? It doesn't mean that a social, uh, you know, if a person is from one social class and someone's from another social class, that somehow after salvation, that goes away. It doesn't mean that a person's skin pigmentation changes after salvation, and it doesn't mean that everybody earns the same income. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, is that there is only one people of God and one place for the people of God, and that is in the one body of God in Christ Jesus. All who have placed saving faith in Christ are one. I read to you earlier Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, right? That's the description of the Apostle John and his vision of the church gathered. Gathered before the throne of God in heaven and his description is of a multi-ethnic community. Verse 9, men from every tribe from every tongue, from every people, and from every nation. And by the way, that's not political nations. That's a, that's a 21st century Western uh, idea. Nation there doesn't refer to political states. It refers to people groups. Now think with me on this. In the first century for the church, the greatest division was the division between Jew and Gentile, Right? The division between Jew and Gentile it was the most difficult and divisive issue imaginable. The hostilities on both sides were so deep-seated and so old, literally going back millennia, the prejudices that had accumulated on both sides of this issue would make it impossible for these two people groups to be one together in a local body. Just impossible. Unless... God does something amazing. And He has. He has provided one way of salvation. 
through one Savior, Jesus Christ, creating one body comprised of Jew and Gentile who are now one new man in Jesus Christ, right? And that which was once a division, a deep-seated hostility, they are now become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, children of God in the family of God. Paul is adamant. The church must include Jew and Gentile together walking in the Spirit. Here's where I go to meddling. You ready? The church in America, I think, is shamed by being the most ethnically segregated organization around today. I think it's to our shame that congregations are gathered along ethnic lines. How is it that people who have been saved in the same way, by the same God, either cannot, do not, or will not fellowship together because of differing skin colors? How is that? Beloved, these things should not be. They should not be. I am persuaded that one of the most serious and practical implications of Paul's message of sola fide here for Foothill, and I told you this is where I'm going to Medellin, for Foothill, is that we as a body over time need to make whatever changes are necessary to accommodate a multi-ethnic congregation. That is, that this congregation placed here by God in this community must reflect, by the grace of God, the demographic profile of the community in which we've been placed. If people are really saved by the same God in the same way and made one in the Spirit, then we belong together worshiping God. Now, That's going to be difficult. That's going to create things that we don't like. But I don't think there's any way around this text. Yes, it is. How does a man personally become right with his Creator? Absolutely. It is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ on a personal basis by personal exercising personal faith. No question about that. But it is not just you and God. Me and God. By the... And the moment of our justification, we become immersed by the Spirit of God into one body. I don't know what it all means. I'll tell you right now, I don't know what it all means. But I am persuaded that it is a necessary implication of justification by grace through faith alone. And that leads me to the last verse in this section, verse 31, where Paul says, no antinomianism. Okay? No antinomianism. And this verse seems a little bit out of the context, I think. The reason it's here is because Paul has to deal with this issue at least quickly. He's going to deal with it in much more detail later on in the book of Romans. Paul has twice said that justification is not at all dependent upon personal law-keeping. Verse 27 and verse 28, but is instead through faith. That naturally raises a question 
with regard to the law? Does that mean that the law has no purpose? Does it mean that the law has no purpose? Can it be set aside? Can the law of God be set aside? As long as we say we have faith, can we live any way we want? Paul's answer, by the way, verse 31. May genita, may it never be. No, 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 no would be a good idiomatic translation, by the way. Okay? Impossible. Unthinkable. I think Paul's point here is to address the question of antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is another big word, right? You guys have been signing up for big words. Maybe next week we'll have a big word review. Okay? We've got propitiation, we've got imputation, we've got justification, now we've got antinomianism. I'm sorry. Okay, there's no way around this. This is the meat and potato stuff. Antinomianism, it's two words put together, anti, against, nomos, law, against the law. That's what antinomianism means. It's the idea that as long as we have faith, we can live with disregard to the law of God. It's more popularized in things like Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. Or perhaps in the terminology, a carnal Christian. Okay? We are saved by grace through faith alone. But listen carefully. The faith that saves us is not a faith that walks alone. It is not a faith that walks alone. True saving faith immediately and necessarily produces good works. Works of righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 2 rather, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you have exercised true saving faith today, then it will show in your life through deeds of righteousness. Now, Paul is going to take up in chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Romans the relationship of the Christian to the law. How do we deal with that? But he's going to dismiss it right now, just out of hand, this notion that by coming to, to um, justification by, uh, by grace through faith alone, that somehow you can live any way you want. Okay? He just wants to dispense with that crazy idea, that heretical idea, and he does it here, may may it never be. In fact, what Paul says, looking at the end of the verse, on the contrary, we establish the law. We don't nullify it, we establish it. How? How does it establish? Well, very quickly, here it is. Verse 26, where he says that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus, in verse 25, is the public propitiation, that is the public offering to turn away the wrath of God okay, for sin. The way that Paul says the, the, the faith system upholds the law is that the, the, the requirements of the law that a sinner must die is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One does die. The lawbreakers are punished. They are punished in Jesus Christ. Remember my earlier example. The lawn must be mowed or you will not go to the football game. The lawn was mowed. The lawn was mowed. Jesus' perfect life is imputed to us. His necessary moral or his moral perfection, which is the necessary requirement to stand in the presence of God, has been imputed to us. By faith. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you shall be what? Perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The entrance requirement and the presence of God is perfection. It is perfection. And that is upheld in the faith system by the imputation of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, the spirit and dwelled follower of Jesus Christ is both empowered and motivated to obey the moral law of God. So, Paul's faith system, God's faith system, does not nullify the Mosaic law. On the contrary, it establishes it. It establishes it. It upholds it. Beloved, there's only one religion in the world. Only one that can save people and still exalt, honor, and establish God's law. That is Christianity. It is only Christianity. And Christianity lives and dies on sola fide. All other religious systems, all other religious systems that are based upon personal law-keeping as a means of being right with God, they dishonor the law because they really don't keep it. They don't keep it. When humanity tries to climb to the presence of God on a ladder of their own law-keeping, their own good works, what happens is that they inevitably relax God's standards in order that their ladder will reach. God does not grade on a curve. God's requirement is perfection. And that is only available by Christ received through faith. No one but Jesus ever kept God's law perfectly. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ personally. You have not received the gift of eternal life by faith. Today is your day. Today is your day. Where you sit, where you are right now, and we're going to make a big production out of this. Close your eyes. Call out upon God. Beseech Him to be merciful to you. Acknowledge before Him your sin, your rebellion, your need for a righteousness, not your own but that which is available to you by faith from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will call out to Him in prayer and truly believe, the Bible says you will be justified. This is such a great opportunity to finish a message like this here at the table. Gentlemen, please join me. These elements here before us are very simple. Bread, juice, the staff of life, the fruit of the vine. And the most simple and common elements in life have been transformed, not literally, but as an illustration of what Christ has done for us. Let me read you a passage of Scripture. Is the room tilting to one side? That's all right. We'll, uh, we'll handle it. Second Corinthians Chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself 
not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we take these elements together, what we're proclaiming, Paul says, is his death until he comes, right? We are proclaiming that justification is readily available to all who will receive it by faith. And we are reminding ourselves once again that there is nothing that we can do to be right with God. He has done it all through His broken body and His shed blood. This is our memorial meal to proclaim His good work until He comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for leaving us this symbol, this drama, this enacted parable, as it were, That by receiving these elements, Lord, we know we don't receive any grace. But what we are reminded of is the grace we have already received and are continuing to receive by virtue of our union with the resurrected one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for the gift that you have given your life for ours. All of our filth, all of our crud, all of our iniquity heaped upon you and punished on your cross and all of your perfection, all of your righteousness, all of your moral standing credited to us. That we can come now into the presence of your father, united by faith to you, beloved, because he loves you, he thus loves us. We receive this meal with gratitude, ask you to Work in our hearts to remind us of what it is we have truly received. Amen.
In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after the church had exploded, really, in Jerusalem, that great day of Pentecost, where just a real handful of believers overnight turns into thousands. Talk about church growth, huh? But it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, the Scriptures, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is an important part of what we do. This is our together corporate proclamation, the death of Jesus Christ, through a divinely ordained symbol. Pleasure to take this with you, my brothers and sisters. Let's eat together.